I'm Dean Deal. And I'm Steve Hoskins. And you're listening to This is the Good Life, a podcast devoted to deciphering what it means to live as a Christian in this day and age. And not just a Christian, but as philosophers, theologians, and maybe even decent golfers. And a marketing guy. Yeah, used to be a marketing guy. Yeah, so speak for yourself. As two longtime college professors, we share a common goal to bring virtue and character back into the conversation of what it means to be Christian. We'll do this by unpacking the thoughts of both our current culture and prominent philosophers like Aristotle, Kant, Descartes, and a guy called Jesus Christ. You'll find that some pretty old thinkers had some pretty good ideas. So join us for a conversation worth having about life worth living. After all, this is The Good Life. Welcome to the first episode of This is the Good Life. And we're hoping this isn't the last episode of This (laughs) is the Good Life. This is not the last episode, but in this podcast, we discuss what is the good life, the ideas of great philosophers on how do we find meaning, where is true happiness, and how does one live out the great virtues of the Christian faith. And to be honest, some not so great philosophers. Yeah, and to be honest, (laughs) some not so great philosophers, and us, but... We're happy you're here. So join us now as we head into this podcast. This is The Good Life. So here we go, Steve. We're actually doing this. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) We're doing a podcast, my friend. Oh, my goodness. And what we're going to do is we're going to explore this idea that we are all are in pursuit of something called the good life, whether we know it or not. Whether we know it or not, whether we understand it or only find our understanding as we go, it is the narrative of the way God intends us to live. Yes, it is. And the the difficulty is in living in our times. Yeah. The competing voices, the competing ideas, and not even just the competing ideas, but the the fact that our world is full of fractured ideas, yeah. as opposed to cohesive. If we were dealing with really clear, cohesive narratives, and you could say, you know, here is the the Kantian narrative, narrative. and here is the narrative, the narrative of Hume, exactly, and here's the narrative but the, of Kierkegaard. But even those are fractured and we don't even we take a little bit of Kant and a little bit of Hume and a little bit and it's it's so broken up. I just got done reading, believe it or not, yeah. the Consolation of Philosophy by, by Boethius. Boethius. And in his he has philosophy come talk to him in prison. Yeah. You know, <laughs> which, is, which is where philosophy always finds <laughs> someone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's a great you, joke there. There's but... a lot of philosophers <laughs> sitting in prison. Um, or a lot of prisoners become philosophers. Yeah, that too. One way or the other. Yeah, one way or the other. But philosophy comes and talks, and she's wearing this robe that represents philosophy, and it's torn. Yeah. And she says, they've torn my robe into pieces and hold on to the pieces as if they have the whole of the robe. So we don't only live in a time with competing narratives, but the narratives are broken and, and flawed. Yeah. Yeah. And what we hope this podcast does is not just sort of put the pieces back together, not just that we find the the treasures of philosophy like Boethius, you know, who, which are great. But what we really hope is that this podcast causes us to think together about what the good life really is. Why don't you, why don't you talk about that a second? Like, yeah. you and I both read an article by Stanley Howard Watts yeah, called exactly. The Good Life. 
And Stanley tells this wonderful story at the beginning, uh, you know, before he goes into his Stan the Man rants. But, you know, <laughs> it's just all you can say. Um, but he tells this wonderful story based on a book, The Good Shepherd, by uh, a writer named James Rebanks. And Rebanks is literally a shepherd. He is uh, out in the Scottish Highlands. He lives with sheep. He knows how to recognize his entire world is to shepherd the sheep in such a way that they grow and mature and, and live well in the place where they are. And he says that there's this scene that, that Rebanks writes about where he's laying by a brook and the sheep are all around him, and he's the shepherd, and he hears the the brook, he hears the water, and he hears the baying of the sheep, and he looks up at the sky, and there's hardly a cloud, and the wind is just rustling enough to let him know there's something going on here that's really, really good and important. And as he lays on his back and takes in his world, he thinks to himself, this is it. I'm living the good life. I'm living the life that God wove into creation and made a place for someone like me. I'm living the good life that God intended. And he says, I am completely at rest with God, with my soul, and with those who enjoy the world with me. And that is the good life. And he, and he says this phrase, which yeah. I love, this is my life. Yep. I want no other. I want no other. And and he he opens the story in such a way that you realize that all of the things that make for a good life, the things that we uh you know dream for and long for have nothing to do with all the things that we're told they do by these other stories. Uh it's it's not about, you know, the pursuit of my own passions. It's not about, you know, living out the my own choices and demanding other people respect me. It literally is a, a life where I get to be free to do the things that cause joy and deep. It's more than happiness. It's peace with God. And in that, Hauerwas says, the genius is recognizing that what the good life does is it makes you free for things. It doesn't free you from things. And so many discussions about the good life, you know, and they're all over the place, are about, well, you just need to dispossess yourself of all your possessions, you know, or freedom uh, from, freedom from, freedom from. Freedom or, or from you need to from. isolate yourself you know, from, from these other things in society that, you know, would bring you down or, you know, or control you, know, you or, control or, or you, define you, or define you, yeah. you know, and, and, and Harawa says that's, that's exactly the wrong way to approach any interesting and true discussion of what a good life is, because what the good life is, is being freed to be with God, for God, as God intends. And in that is a life of which we would want no other. That's my longing, and I'm sure it's the longing of, of most people. And the challenge we have with these, these narratives, these stories— See, I work in entertainment. Yes. I understand the power— You're a great entertainer, Dean. Yeah, thank I you very much. I just want to say that. I actually sell entertainment. <laughs> you're entertaining that's, the entertainers. That's that puts exactly you, that puts what— you, I mean, you're like a, a mega entertainer. That's exactly. That's what I would like to think. But the power of a story— You know, we, we say things like, everybody knows killing's wrong. 
Yeah. Nobody, I don't like, you know what? I just love killing. It's my favorite thing. It's like, I'm sitting around. What would I like to do? I'd, I'd like to go kill something. Yeah. That's a, that's They're, a narrative that's long been held in this world. And we don't yes. like to think about it, but it's true. Yeah. Not many people would admit that one. Yeah. But we, not most, anymore. Most people would say killing is wrong. But what Hollywood and entertainment does is they say, hey, we all know killing's wrong. But let me tell you a story. Yeah. And they start to tell a story and they set up, how many times you watch the movie and the bad guy finally gets it and you're like, yes. Yeah. You know, and it's like a Princess Bride where the kid's like, yeah. who kills Humperdinck? <laughs> it's like, Humperdink lives. What? Why are you what? telling me the story? Why is, what is this story? What kind of a story lets the, the bad, bad guy, guy live? live? Yeah. Hollywood does the same thing. It's like, oh, I know you should be faithful to your wife, but let me tell you a story. Yeah. And it's this constant, yeah. let me tell you a story. Let me tell you. And the stories that are coming at us, not only are they fractured and incomplete, and they're not pure narratives, and they, they pull a little bit from here, a little bit from there, so they're, they're not even something you could build a life on, but that these, these stories, they, they grab things that in themselves could be good things, yeah. but they make them the goal in and of themselves. In the list in Consolation of Philosophy, they talk about yeah. power, Yes. And, and wealth. Right. And beauty. Yep. And pleasure. Yep. And, and control. Those, and control. But those things, for the most part, are good when they're part. And this is where she talks about her robe being torn. Yeah. That when, they, when you have power tempered by beauty, tempered by, you know, that when mm-hmm. they come together as a seamless whole, and then they are laid freedom for, laid into service towards something greater, yeah. then you can hold them safely. But when you try to possess power in and of itself and hold it to yourself rather than within a community. So, yeah. so the, the, well, the community, and this is, this is, there's so much here that's really yeah. good. So one of the things we have to sort of say at the beginning here is, okay, what we hope this podcast does is inspire not just this conversation with you and me, but a number of conversations within our community. Uh, Trebekah, the churches that we attend, our families, all of those interconnected groups. I've had your kids in my classes. Uh, you helped take care of my daughter. Our daughters went to violin camp together. You know, those <laughs> kinds of. I don't know if you remember that, but I think I, I think Monica was ten and Allie was eleven, and and I remember driving them over and like, are y'all going to be okay? And they're like, leave us alone. We're all right. You know, they're just until they brave. get home and we had to listen. In this beautiful, but but not just that. What we really hope happens is that a real good, deep examination yes. of these things that are obvious, the, the striving for power, the need to be recognized as more beautiful or more wealthy, will not just be thought about, but will become, this will become a way of living toward other goals, toward a greater goal. And realizing that these are what, you know, Howard Wass, we'll talk a whole lot about philosopher named Alistair McIntyre, call competing or rival notions of what is good. And so in that, we think there's a lot of fun to be had. We think there's a lot of really good conversation to be had. And we really think that when we get done with things like this, what we hope is, is that people find real concrete ways to live the good life where they are. Throughout this series, is particularly in this first season, a lot of what we're doing and a lot of the conversation 
is shaped around the writing, and you already mentioned of Alistair yeah. McIntyre and his book, After Virtue. Why don't you talk a little bit about who yeah. he is and why he's so yeah. important to this conversation? Well, well McIntyre comes of age uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, not just as a person, but as a thinker. Uh, if you'll remember the middle of the 20th century, you're coming out of the eras of the World War, and you're getting into all of these wonderful critiques, political critiques of society and the way society should be formed and the way society should form individuals and how we should live and what we should, you know, give our allegiances to and our time to and our money to. And McIntyre's highly affected by all this. And he, you know, for a while, uh, early on in his career, gives himself to Marxism. You know, he sort of, you know, gets into several of the really interesting discussions around political powers in Europe um, and what the way forward ought to be. And then in the middle of it, he comes into what the ancients would have called a crisis of faith. And he converts to Christianity and he sort of rewrites the method for understanding his work and for those of us who are Christians, understanding where we are in this moment. And here's what he says. It's real simple. Philosophy used to hold all things together, the center held, in the same way that things like the scriptures and the creeds are the galvanizing centers of our faith. They, they hold all of that together. And he said, somewhere in the middle, and he names the Enlightenment, somewhere around 1700 or so, he said, the center of philosophy, as Boethius says in his narrative, gets ripped apart. And now here we are, and we've got some philosophy that says the only true way of living and finding meaning is to live according to your passions. And we've got some philosophers that say the only way, true way of finding meaning is living according to reason. And some say the only true way to find meaning is to stand up and be an individual and, and live out your personal choices and make demands on people. And, and he says that that won't do. And he goes to the ancient method of Aristotle and reads him through the great medievalist Thomas Aquinas, you know, the great Christian theologians of all time. And he says, we've got to quit doing that. What we've got to do is return to a way of understanding the world that has the ultimate purpose of the world in mind, that is service to Almighty God. And he says, there's a whole tradition of understanding the world and doing philosophy and learning to think that we must recapture. And that is what this podcast is really concerned with. No doubt. As you're, as you're going through over the next uh, several episodes and as we get into this, and hopefully a season two that begins to explore the virtues required to live into the telos yeah. Yeah. of the Christian life, you'll start to realize we're talking a lot about philosophy and theology. And for many of us, those were just classes we took yeah, as, to get, as students. Gen ed to get through. <laughs> exactly. But in, in reality— Unlike many disciplines, we are all called to be theologians. We are all called, called to, to be, be philosophers. philosophers. And so this is the work of living a, a good life, but also a life that has meaning and purpose to it. I think that deep inside us is a longing that as we look back across our life, I'm 57, you're 59. Yeah. You get to that point. When you start rounding the third base, yeah, yeah. or maybe halfway or maybe, between, maybe halfway to home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you start rounding the third base, you start heading home, you start to look back and you go, has my life been worth living? You only get one shot. And the nice yeah. thing is, Steve, it's never too late to ask these questions. No, it's not. And, and 
the other voice we need to bring into the conversation who won't get as much play in this series of podcasts as he would if we were doing something else is John Wesley. And and Wesley, you know, you sort of look at the way McIntyre says, okay, everything sort of fell apart about 1700. Well, you know, Wesley comes into the world in 1703, dies in 1791. And Wesley saw this. He was a well-educated person. He attended Oxford. He's a reader all of his life. He's the great leader of a, of a renewal movement called Methodism inside the church. And Wesley said the goal for Christians is to be reasonable, reasonable thinkers, reasonable people, so that, number one, we might live at peace with the world around us. Number two, that we might find the life that God would lead us into. And number three, that we might lead the world in a renewal of being thoughtful human beings. And there is in that sense of Wesley's reasonable Christianity, which that those that phrase dots a lot of Wesley's writings. It's the title of some, and it's, you know, in different things. But that's what Wesley says is the great goal of being sanctified and being filled with the Holy Spirit is to become a reasonable Christian. And he puts that in that order where, where a difference from Kant yeah. is it's a redeemed reason. Yes, it is. It is not looking within ourselves. No. But looking to God to redeem our minds yeah. so that we can be reasonable. I always, you know, I, in, in the business world, there's a whole lot of things. Do you trust the data or you trust your gut? And my thing is always you train your gut so you can trust your gut. <laughs> in in Wesley's view, it's you redeem your imagination so that you can use your imagination. Yeah. Right. He was doing an exercise in the pursuit of a redeemed person. That's right. Because he believed that being redeemed meant, amongst other things, being healthy. It meant being thoughtful. It meant being well-read. That's what redeemed people do. And we really need to remember that. And let it help guide us as we go through this very philosophically oriented discussion. Regardless of who you are or what you're, you're doing or your status in life, there is something that is shaping you, some idea that shapes you that, that is the good why, that, that uh, you, when you're thinking about what job you want to do, where you want to live, are you going to get married? Are you going to have kids? Or those decisions, are, they roll on past you. Sometimes it rolls over you. But when we're placed in those big moments of life decisions, something in us is, is pushing us towards an idea of this is why I'm here and this is how I make these kind of decisions. And there are, like you said, rival notions and complementary notions yeah, as yeah. we go through these. Yeah, rivals can be complementary. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there are times as we go through these over the next several episodes, you know, I've told you before, I, I go, oh, I've done that. Yeah, I've done that. Oh, I've kind of done both of these at the same time. They, they are rival notions. They're not necessarily, like you said, competing notions. And that we can carry more than one idea in our in our hearts and minds at time. And sometimes we have one in our heart, one in our mind, and there, you know, we make decisions constantly that go against what we believe to well, be yeah, the purpose of life. And that's of part life. of what education is for: is to hold rival notions in your mind at the same time while you're making good decisions. I tell my my philosophy classes, you know, part of of what you're here to learn to do is to compare. That the whole notion of a liberal arts curriculum is based upon this idea that there is a good, you know, there there is the thing that drives me, that motivates me, the thing that I can't betray, you know, as I make these big decisions and live my life. 
but there are also rival notions of the good. And then there are the difficult parts of the good where I must decide, what am I going to do? Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to accept? What am I basing my acceptance upon? And in that, the great skill that's needed is the philosophical skill of comparison. See, and I think where this becomes a conversation that we need to have as a people is we live at a time, particularly here in the U.S., of such pluralism. There's so many different ideas and so many different philosophies and so many different religions and so many different ideologies. I use the reference almost that, that current society is like a soup of ideas. And the reason I like the word soup is they're so intertwined and so melded and thrown into a blender and spit back out that it's very difficult to, oh. to reach into that and find a consistent thread of thought, yeah. to confine, yeah. a, 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 dare I, I use the word, yeah. a tradition of, of thought yeah. that, that tells me where I am, who I am, yeah. and how do I get through this? We're told, and, and it was true for us, and it's even more true now, we're told you are the creator of your own universe. You are the creator of your own right and wrong. It's up to you to look at the soup and, and out of all of this, to find the, the tradition is meaningless. You have to find your own path. Yeah. We are not the product or some of our family. We're not the product of some of our traditions. We're not the product of our culture. We're not the product of our upbringing or our education. Yeah. We have to somehow, we have to remove ourselves from all of that, become this radical individual who then remakes themselves devoid of tradition, devoid of background, devoid of culture, yeah. and become this new being. And it's why I hate Mongolian barbecues. Because, <laughs> but I like I, Mongolian barbecue. The problem with the Mongolian barbecue get some of that teriyaki sauce. <laughs> but that's the problem: is I find myself standing in front of this bar of ingredients. Right. I don't know what they taste like. I don't know what they. Yeah. I don't know how they go together. I know I like Mongolian beef, but I don't know what they put in that. <laughs> I don't know what the right mixture is of these ingredients. Yeah. So when I pull myself out of tradition and upbringing and background, and I, I pull myself all that, become a radical individual, yeah. and now I have to stand and look at all of the component parts, um, including a whole bunch of things I've never even been exposed to. And so the goal of life now is, well, I don't want to miss out on what this tradition has to say or what they have to say or what they have to say. And so it's all stripped out of the recipes yeah. And dumped into bins of ingredients, and now I'm supposed to go and build a life. And what we end up is every decision I face, because I'm not part of a tradition, I'm not part of a practice, I'm simply a free agent standing in front of all these ingredients. Now I have to decide how I feel about abortion. Yeah. And so what I do is I go, okay, I have to now build my entire own thought yeah. processes about life, about when does life and and so where do I go? I go to social media because that's where yeah. I go. And now I go and I go ask all my friends who are also adrift yeah. and alone in front of the Mongolian and who, barbecue. And, and none go, of whom are experts, but all think they are. Exactly. And so it'd be like me going, all right, what are you going to put on your plate for the Mongolian barbecue? Well, I like shrimp and I like that. I don't like shrimp. Oh, okay. Well, then try beef with, you know. Yeah. And so what we have is a whole group of people looking at each other going, well, what are you going to do? Well, what do you think? And we become our own authority. We become our own arbiter of truth. Yeah. And if in the dark of the night, when we're all alone with ourselves, 
The reason we have so much anxiety, the reason we have so much stress is I believe there is a tremendous cognitive dissonance of going, surely I can't be the arbiter of truth in my life. Surely I can't be in charge of my own tradition or build my own way of thinking and deciding. Well, this, and this, this of course is the sort of place where the genius of the way McIntyre presents the world shows itself because you've got all the parts. Okay. Uh, You even mentioned the goal. All right. But notice at the center of, of that description of the world is the individual. What McIntyre says is we have to flip that script because the thing that guides it, that guides the good life, that makes life worth living, gets us back to the tradition, gets us back to those stories, is the goal. At the center of all things, the things that hold it together is not my individualness. It's the purpose. It's the telos. It's the good life. And without that, as the goal, as the consummation, as what is required, what can be achieved. This is the old Aristotelian move from what we would call human nature to humans as we were created to be. And in that middle of that journey, uh, you know, Aristotle says, is becoming a real person, a, a living, thinking, practicing, good human being between human nature, what I am left to myself, and humans as they were created to be, for Aristotle, by the gods, for us as Christians, by the God, capital G. And without that, we are literally a collection of strangers, says McIntyre, living in a criterionless environment in which there is no hope of ever settling any moral discussions, much less deciding what is a salad. Or what is Mongolian? Mongolian what, what makes beef actually Mongolian beef? And as you drive down oh, the road of these days, yeah, lots, lots, of, of, lots onion. of onions or, you know, that sauce they put on it. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting that what McIntyre does is without subduing or destroying the notion of what it means to be a person, what it means to be you, what it means for me to be me, he finds a way, and it's an ancient way of saying, here is the good life. And the good life is knowing the telos, knowing the purpose for us, knowing God, and understanding that that is not not a God who doesn't have demands, that that is a God who has purposes, and that we're created not with freedom, but with responsibility to love and serve God and to love and serve one another. Which is is one of the most freeing things there is. It's wonderful because then you don't have to uh, sit around and try to justify your choices based on money or based upon, you know, the current crisis of humanity. But, but, you know, what McIntyre says is rather than understanding the telos as a society operating toward the preservation of everyone's individual rights, what the telos is the people of God living according to God's purposes, God's intentions, and God's commands into the glory of God, which is the good life. See, and I think that that our modern society, again, here in the U.S., our society, the ideal society for many is to create a space where this self-discovery can happen no matter where it leads. And somehow, 
if you're at the Mongolian barbecue and somebody hands you, I'm going, I'm staying with it. Yeah. I'm staying with That's it. That's okay. It's a good, so it's you, a great you, metaphor. You go to the Mongolian barbecue and someone hands you a card. And on the card, it says Mongolian beef. And it says, here's how you got to do. Four ounces of beef, two ounces of onion. They give you a recipe yeah. card. A side of Mongolian. Well, uh, and a, and a sauce, <laughs> they, they tell you what to put on the plate and you hand it to the guy. And it's like somehow... To take in the recipe card that tells you how to build a good meal. Yeah. You've abdicate. Why even go to the Mongolian barbecue then? You've wasted the opportunity. You could have built something original. You could, and I'm, yeah. I'm kind of the guy going, I'd rather someone tell me, I know I like that. Why don't you just tell me how to make it? And we call those or things. better tra- yet, show me exactly. how to make it. And we call those things traditions. We call those things practices. And I'll say this, and I'll say it again, I'm sure, multiple times throughout this season, there's two things about becoming a Christian that fly in the face of modern life. The first one is that when God calls us, he calls us to a community. It's not just me and God. I'm not out here in the middle of a field all by myself. I'm not at the Mongolian barbecue looking at all these ingredients. I'm being called into a community. And the second thing is that that community has a past. It has a history. It has a story. That community also has a future. (laughs) And it, it puts us in the middle. It's a recipe card to some degree. Yeah. And McIntyre says that it is, and, and this is his, you know, this is one of those words, which it seems simple, but it's not. He says, what that means is the good life is a particular kind of life. That's right. That it is, it, it's it a tradition and a practice. Tradition and practice. It has, it has shape. It has form. It has instructions, if you will. Uh, it is repeatable. Not just repeatable uh, over, you know, within one context or another, but repeatable over time. So whether one is here or one is there, or whether one is old or whether one is young, whether one is ancient, whether one is dead or one is one is alive. See, and the the leap we have to take to get there, yeah, in modern society, the leap we have to take is that when I embrace a tradition like that, when I enter into a story like that, that has this rich past and everything, I am not diminished. You see, um, somehow it's like this idea, it, it, we're, you know where we are right now is at the beginning of orthodoxy. Yeah. Where, where Chesterton, and you could tell this way better than I could, Chesterton sets out to find, to find the, the, the undiscovered yeah, land and, and, and discovers Piccadilly find, Square. And finds out he's discovered something that's already been discovered. It's already been and discovered. And he was supposed to enjoy it. <laughs> and you see, that's the thing is I really do think that's where we are is if I somehow take on a set of beliefs, a set of practices that have already existed, I have been diminished. If I take the recipe card and follow the recipe card, then I miss the opportunity to make my own new creation that's never existed before. And it's so funny to to deal with people who have been on that journey. I've discovered this. I'm like, ah, that was actually this, or that was this tradition, or somebody. It's like they think they've had this brilliant original thought. It's like, yeah, I had that discussion with one of my daughters the other day. She was talking about this, you know, I had this crazy idea of this, this. I was like, oh, yeah, that's Plato. Yeah. <laughs> and she's yeah, like, what? No, yeah. that's that's no. Plato. I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, honey. I'm sorry. That, that, one's, that one's been around. That one's about 4,000 yeah. years old. <laughs> and that, But that's just it, is to get to the point that when we enter into one of these traditions, when we and there's more than, than one, um, but when we enter one of these traditions, when we enter into one of these practices, this idea of practices, we've not been diminished, but we've come home. Yeah. And not only have we come home, but we have found our identity. We have found our place within this life. And, and we're not alone. And we're not alone. And we only are who we are 
in relation to the other people that we share this life with. I can only be Steve, the church historian, if there is a church whose history is worth remembering. You know, part of what we hope to do with this podcast, you know, we're going to assume that a lot of the people listening to this are Christian. Yes. And are on the the journey. But even within the church, and we'll say this in several of the episodes, even a church can have telos wander. One of the things we talk about with telos is it's like I've said before, um, when you're on a map, the things you need to know, you need to know where you are, where you're going. But for a map to make sense, you need to know true north. You need to know where north is. So you and can orient this So we to can the world. orient the whole map. Uh, yeah. I said, I learned that playing video games. You know, you get on video Stop games. Stop it. And <laughs> you've got to find your way and you find this map. And then you're looking at the map and it doesn't tell you where north is. And now you got to try to figure because out. Because you're in a video game. There's your north. <laughs> it doesn't exist. It does exist. And you have to kind of get oriented. But it, even, a, even a church, a local church or even a denomination or, or the church can wander off of the story, can wander off of North. And so these ideas that we talk about, and several of them, the ones we have episodes, we're going to talk about the happiness, not true happiness, that word I can't pronounce. Oh, uh, uh, eudaimonia. Yes. But the don't worry, be happy. Yes. Just, you know, just ignore everything and just decide yeah. to be happy. Yeah, in the moment. In Go the moment, it. exactly. Be all you can be. The, the authenticity one, I have to be true to myself. Yep. Um, I got to be me. Uh, duty, duty. Uh, Got to do my duty no matter what. Uh, another one of those fancy words for that one. Uh, yeah, rule followers. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say deontology. <laughs> you were going to say deontology. I just like calling them the rule followers. Exactly. Which I we're Nazarene. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I was going to say time. which our Nazarene churches are full of. Yes. Or, or just the self-actualization. Somehow, I have to be the best version of myself. And you can even get to the point where all of those could become acts of worship. Oh. God doesn't want us to yeah. worry. God just yeah. wants us to be happy, or God mm-hmm. wants us to do our duty. Yeah. God wants me regardless to— Regardless of the moral to, outcomes. Regardless of the just outcomes. Just be happy. Just do your duty. Regardless of the ethical demands of a God who is redeeming the world. See, and the, the challenge we have with all of these, both as individuals and as churches and as communities— is do we know what happiness is? Do I have to decide for myself? And it's so funny when you talk to young people as advisors, you know, one of my favorite roles I have on campus is a faculty advisor. I love it. I I don't understand when faculty members are like, oh, we got to do advising. I'm like, this is the gold right here. Um, But you're sitting and you're talking to a student and they're still in that stage of, I've got to cut myself from all from all tradition, all previous thought. I've been brainwashed. I have to now get rid of all this brainwashing, and now I have to decide for myself what, what's going to make— wonder if there's a bottle that said brainwashing at the Walmart, so you can just go and buy it, and you pour it on your anti, head like shampoo. It's, no, it's from Acme. It's in a Wiley Coyote Roadrunner. You've got—it's like brainwashed juice and then unbrainwashed juice— that comes from Acme. Yeah, and four years later, they're perfectly normal human beings. That's exactly beings. right. And I want to just, in the advising session, hand them the unbrainwashed juice, yeah, yeah. drink this, and then realize, I got to, now here's what I've got to do is I've got to figure all this out. And it's so funny to watch them on this journey because what they end up is, we don't know what makes us happy. Yeah. And you watch them like bumblebees going from flower to flower. We have all these, we're real in, my, my daughter Emily has convinced us we all need to have pollinators around. The, I got all this oh. land, we need pollinators. <laughs> Congratulations. So got, yes, we have pollinators <laughs> and, and we're attracting butterflies, bees, and hummingbirds. 
And you watch them just flit from flower to flower to flower. And it reminds me of my students going, oh, this is what's going to make me happy. And take a little sip. Ah, that didn't make me happy. I'll go over here and try this flower. Oh, that didn't make me happy. Or I need to do my duty. All right. So here's a decision I'm faced. Well, what's my duty? And, and somewhere over time, we start to learn. Maybe maybe someone needs to tell me what would make me happy. Maybe there's someone that could yeah. tell me what my duty well, is one of the things or what that, to yeah. be authentic to. And one of the things that McIntyre says about the idea of being a person, of, of being a self, having an identity, is that any identity, any human identity anywhere in time emerges out of a past, out of a narrative. Even when out, we think we're on our own. Even when we think we're on our own, we're not on our own. And you reference Chesterton, and Chesterton says, when you're in the pit of despair and you think you're praying in the darkest of nights and you're all alone, realize that all of heaven has surrounded you and is praying with you. We have to take, in some sense, not comfort, but life from our past. It's not a good past. It's a good life. And it's the hard part is in embracing it. And I think part of what happens in a Christian community that is a university, and we've used this word, you know, comparison, is I, I think we have to spend time comparing versions of the good life. Because within the church, even, there are rival notions of the good life. And we, you know, is it duty? Is it, you know, self-actualization? Is it my happiness, which, you know, ends, you know, wherever I say it ends and, you know, wherever you get in my way? We have to do that so that not only can we understand how things have been sort of lived out in the past, we have to do it to find our way forward. God will bring it to us. God, in his wonderful mercy, will bring those who need to be converted. He will bring the hurting. He will bring the poor. And he will even bring our future to us. And when our future shows up, fascinatingly, in one of God's great metaphysical tricks, it's going to look like our past with arms open wide and nail-scarred hands. And a Savior who says, I'm saving the world. Come and follow me. You know, as a musician, a lot of times you'll hear two running metaphors. You know, musicians, we want to talk about music. Athletes want to talk about sports. I'm not an athlete. Yes. So I'll talk about music. And I came here as a music major, music ed, want to be a band director, and I was a trumpet player. And when you enter into a practice like music, all of that desire to, why do I have to get out the Clark Technical Studies? What were these written? This was written a hundred years ago. Nobody's come up with a better way to learn the trumpet than the Clark Technical Studies. And my Which teacher was made up of? <laughs> scales, scales, and arpeggios, <laughs> yes. and and different rhythms and, and different yeah. patterns, rhythmic patterns that you had yeah. to learn how to play and techniques. And my trumpet teacher, he was this gruff old, looked like a bear, you they know, <laughs> big gruff bear yeah. guy. Played in the symphony, loved this. He played third trumpet. Now in trumpet, there's this ego thing. You got to be the first trumpet, it's like Top Gun. And I would be <laughs> like, a Doctor Armstrong. You don't want to be third chair at Top Gun school. No, 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 no. But it's like. Professor Armstrong, why don't you want to be first chair? He goes, I'll tell you why. He says, the guys that play first have to play all those high notes. And after two or three hours, they're done. Yeah, and they probably when all I, die early, and, too. And he goes, when I'm playing third trumpet, 
He goes, there's nothing difficult about it. I can play third trumpet all day long. So they play two sessions and they're, they're done for the day. They got to go ice down their lips. I can sit and just play third trumpet all day and I can play six, seven, you know, I was like, okay, this guy's something, but he just got to play this stuff, got to play this stuff. So Doc Severinsen's coming to town. And this was back the when Doc, Doc, the Doc Severinsen. Like the Tonight Show the, Doc Severinsen. He was like one of the greatest trumpet the players. The coolest of cool on the yeah. Johnny Carson show. So he got it to where he was coming to we town. We are really old. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's, so he's playing at MTSU, and, and my teacher got it where we could show up early. Now, we didn't get to meet him, but we got to go backstage and just kind of, he says, I just want you to hear him warming up. And you know what he was doing as he was one of those one of the greatest trumpet players of all time. He probably had out that what was the book? Had the Clark the, Technical the, Studies. He probably had it out in front of he him. He was out there playing scales. Yep. And and I'm just going ah, oh. and and so the reason I talk about that is being part of a symphony orchestra is very much like what we're talking about because it's a community yep. that uses the past to tell us what is good. Mm-hmm. We're playing a piece that was written by Mozart. And there's nothing worse than being a trumpet player on Mozart because yeah, back then trumpets didn't have valves. Yeah. And so you only had, you know, a handful of notes you could play. And their idea of the trumpet is, all right, we need you to bring the— There were the, no Marvel we, superhero yeah, trumpet no, you're players. you're here to bring the noise. <laughs> so you're usually counting about 120 measures of rest, and then you're playing your note. Yeah. And then you're out again. Yeah, then you're out. But to play your note and to play it well, you, you have to have done your private work. Mm-hmm. You know, you're showing you up. You don't want to let the group down. You have to practice. I have to practice. And what am I practicing? Scales. Yeah. So you have all the stuff you do as an individual so that you can contribute to the group. What if the definition of what we're doing is set? There's a piece of music in front of us. It was written 300 years ago. How this music's supposed to be performed is already laid out. How to perform it well is already determined. Yeah. And you're in this group of peers and there's an audience and you're playing your music in front of that audience. And one of the greatest moments of my life in a very brief life. Uh, very was, brief life of a trumpeter. Of a trumpeter. <laughs> oh, yeah. look, at your biography title. Yeah, my, my, the, the, the beginning, the peak, and the end as a trumpet player was a very, very concentrated short. period of time. It's a good but book. Actually, it's just only three pages long. Exactly right. So we used to hire professional musicians to come here every year for the commencement concert. And my senior year, Instead of auditioning to be one of the the soloists, I actually got to be part of the orchestra, which was all paid musicians. And so I'm like, oh, man. And I'm playing third trumpet because my teacher told me that's the one you want. (laughs) And we were playing one of those pieces where it goes on and on and on. And finally, you make the entrance. And it's really hard because you're cold. You haven't played anything for a couple hours. Did you squeak? I did not. (laughs) Oh, and we got to our entrance and I played it. And across the way was this clarinet player who taught on campus, one of our professors. And she just looked over and just gave me a little nod. Yeah. Isn't it great? I mean, think about this for a minute. So you, you spend all that time in this very technical book. That's the everyday activities of life. That's right. You read the Bible. That's right. You pray. Uh, you visit people who are sick. By the way, always take food. Uh, you know, that's a Southern thing. And yet... In those technical practices are the great Mozart works of the world, are the great symphonies of the world waiting to be played, the great glory and beauty that will be revealed when the symphony comes together. That's exactly how we need to learn to think of the Christian life, the good life. That's it. Is, yeah. is, is, is when we get there, you know, and we are in the getting there. The English language does us no justice in trying to describe the becoming of that, how we That's become right. that. But 
in those in those you know daily exercises of practice virtue is revealed god's intentions are revealed the ideas related to goodness because so much of what is in the scripture are these instructions on the good life which sometimes are are pretty clear don't do that don't but sometimes are there to be lived through to try and figure out why it is that God would curse a fig tree. You know, that was just being a fig tree. And anybody who knows that story knows that it's a really interesting point in the way Jesus makes disciples, you know, what it means for uh, God to walk on water and to call us to himself, what it means for God to say, I die for you. Those things are the big moments, but that's the everyday act. That's right. Of sitting with the sick and yeah. reading the scripture and realizing from dust we were made to dust we will return. Those, in those things, in those practices, in which there is little joy, except when Doc Severinsen is the one doing the practice. Exactly. <laughs> you know, occasionally you find yourself in the stream going, oh, yeah. is that in there too? He did play the scale three and a half octaves. <laughs> oh my goodness. So it was a pretty good scale. Yeah, it was a pretty good scale. <laughs> Uh, you know, there are those occasional masters. Um, but but in that, I think, you know, there is a revelation, and it's the revelation of God's great purpose for life, which is for us to be that symphony playing into as his glory, glorifying God in the living of the life. And that's what a Christian college is for, is to train us to do that. That's what life is for, you know. When my dad was diagnosed with cancer, he called me, and it was bad. Yeah. I mean, he knew. And he said, well, Dean, it's my turn. Oh, wow. And I said, what do you mean? It's my turn. He says, my whole life, I've watched people move on. And he said, this is my opportunity. He didn't ask, why me? Mm. He just said, it's my turn. And he said, I hope I can show you guys how to do this. Wow. He says, I've been preparing my whole life to show you guys how to do this, yeah. and I'm going to show you how to die. And the Scripture calls those who die in the peace of God, the Scripture calls them a gift, you know, a, 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 a moment, a door into God's great purpose for our lives. And <gasps> he was laying in the bed the day before he died, and the pastor came over to do communion. And my dad had been unresponsive for probably 24 hours. And so what my mom did was she took a little of the bread and dissolved it in a Mm -hmm. cup so that they were blended. And she took this little sponge Mm -hmm. and touched it on his tongue. And when he tasted the juice, he came back to us for a minute. Wow. And he raised his hands and began to to worship in tears. And we gathered around and, and we started to sing. And you'd have to, me and my brothers, we forgot the words. <laughs> so we're, we're singing this hymn and we're messing Just as it up. I am, you know, and we start, those words. And we started laughing. <laughs> and my dad, who still was basically, he was pretty unresponsive, but he just started shaking his head back and forth like, I'm laying here dying and you guys can't even <laughs> you, sing my favorite you song. Practice the song. You should have practiced the song. But it was this beautiful moment, and we all just looked at each other going, this doesn't happen in real life, does it? Doesn't this just happen in movies? Is this 
for real, did my dad just come back from an unresponsive state, from the taste of the body and blood of Christ, and worship with us one last time? This stuff doesn't happen, unless maybe you've prepared your whole life. Yeah, unless, of course, it does. Unless, in, of course, it does. And in that does. moment, the living tradition of the community of faith of all the ages, because he didn't raise his hands by himself. No. And you all at least remembered the tunes. Yeah. Oh, we could <laughs> but, we could lay some yeah, harmony yeah. down. Oh, I'm sure you could. Knowing you all, at least you knew the tune, you know. But you didn't remember all that by yourself, and your mom didn't think to make this body and blood of Jesus for her spouse in that moment by herself. Oh yeah, it happens in real life because it's called the good life. This is The Good Life is hosted by Dean Deal and Steve Hoskins. The show is brought to you by the Trevecca Nazarene University Alumni Association. Produced by Wise Company with help from Aaron Fairchild. To learn more or to donate to our show's mission, head over to trevecca.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.